Have you ever seen a commercial or perhaps you have been shopping for jewelry when the seller will put out a piece of black fabric or maybe a dark background of some sort, maybe it'll be a, a black background or a dark navy, and he'll set that forth and then he'll take some jewels that are already brilliant and gorgeous, but he'll lay them down against the black and you really get a chance to see the jewels pop. And you see that contrast and it gives you an idea, it gives you a better chance to look at the jewels and see what they're really like. Well, this morning in the passage that we're going to look at, Paul is going to do a very similar thing. He is going to start out first by laying out something that is very dark, that is very dismal, that is very hopeless, and then he's going to contrast that. And he's going to bring out and describe something to us that, that's really indescribable. He's going to um, talk about grace and love and mercy. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2? Ephesians chapter 2. Your reading today for this week was verses 1 through 10. I hope you have had a chance to read through that. I am not going to take the time to read all 10 verses now. What we'll do instead is work through them a verse at a time as we go. If you were here the first week, we put the book of Ephesians in context so that we could understand it. The second week, we put ourselves in context. We talked about what it meant to be in Christ. We talked about our new identity. Last week, we talked about prayer, and we looked at some of the things that Paul prayed. That, too, he prayed that we would understand our new identity. This week, once again, we are going to talk about our new identity in Christ. However, he does not start there. He starts by explaining what we used to be. He starts by explaining our old context. He starts by giving us the bad news first. Okay, And we should note here that he is going to start by talking about things that most people find offensive. Okay, <clears throat> when my kids were little, you could not watch a family sitcom on Friday night that didn't end with the parents sitting the children down, telling them that they just needed to believe in themselves. They needed to just look deep down inside and believe in yourself. Sesame Street has a song called Believe in Yourself, and they invite famous singers to come on the show and sing it. Sheryl Sandberg, who is the COO of Facebook, recently wrote a best-selling book called Lean In, where she is encouraging women to lean in to their ambitions and pursue their dreams. She passionately encourages women of the world to believe in themselves. Listen to any successful Olympian or famous athlete after the big game, and you will probably hear them mention that at some point in their lives, mom and dad or some coach had told them to believe in themselves. That is a very uh, popular message. It is a very attractive message. We like that message. <clears throat> now think about it. Why? Why is that such a popular message? Well, because behind it is the idea that everybody is good. 
that deep down inside, people are good. You just need to look deep down inside enough. If somebody has enough love and support, why all of that love is just going to come bubbling to the surface. Think about it. If, if you have a, a person that is corrupt and poor, why all you need to do is give him better circumstances and he would be a different person. Why all you have to do is ask any celebrity or politician and they would, they would agree. And for those problems that are really difficult, for the really bad people, you have a little thing called rehab. And rehab can fix anything. And why is that? Because people are good. Deep down, people are good. In the first few verses of this chapter, Paul is going to hit us upside of the head and tell us very quickly, that is not the case. In fact, it is just the opposite. So let's start by looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. <clears throat> and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Okay, we're going to stop there for now. On your handout this morning, we are going to start by discussing who we were. Okay, this is our past, who we were. According to Paul, we were number one, we were dead in trespasses and sin. Okay, were dead. He's talking about your old context. He's talking about your past. Okay, in your past, you were dead in sins and trespasses. Now, that might be a little confusing at first because you might be thinking, uh, you know very well that you've been alive and kicking. So what is he talking about being dead? Well, I want to take you back to our first week. Do you remember the first week we were together, we talked about um, the term heavenly places? Okay. Uh, Ephesians is a book where Paul is going to turn back the curtains a little bit and let us see into the spiritual realms, into the heavenly places. He's going to be discussing a lot about that. He's been teaching us that there is more to this world than meets the eye. Now, I want to say something while I'm on this topic. Right now, there are a lot of different uh, books about heavenly places and spiritual realms. You have a lot of people that have these near-death experiences, and then they go to heaven, and they see all these things, and they learn all these things, and then they come back, and they write a book or make a movie about it. Be very suspect. Be very suspect. When you hear somebody going on and on about all these details about heaven, that should set off red flags, like a parade of them, okay? Everything that we need to know about the heavenly places, about the spiritual realm, have been given to us already in his word. That's what we need to read, okay? Anything about heavenly places and spiritual realms that God's word does not give us, we, we do not need to know yet. So God's word is complete, it is powerful, and it is living. All right, back to Ephesians. Having said that, Paul has a lot to say about the spiritual realm and the heavenly places. And for starters, he tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. We know he's not talking about the physical because we've physically been alive. So we know he's talking about the spiritual here. He's telling us we have been spiritually dead. He's talking about our souls, the most important being important part of our being. And he's telling us that that was dead. Now, we're going to use our understanding of death 
to understand what he means by this. All right? For instance, we are dead. You are A. You are separated from the living. Death separates. God is living. You are dead. You are separated. You could also use alienated. That would work in that blank too. B, if you are dead, you are hopeless. Hopeless. Doctors, do not go into the morgue and schedule surgery or prescribe drugs or talk about treatment plans. At that point in the morgue, you are hopeless. All right? C, you are helpless. If you're in the morgue, you don't do anything to improve yourself. You cannot. You're not able to sit up or to give yourself a makeover or do any of those things. You are helpless. You are unable to help to improve your situation. Okay? That's the state of being dead. Now, what were we dead in? Well, we're told two things, trespasses and sins. First is your trespasses. If you are out walking and you see a sign that says no trespassing and you keep walking, that makes you a trespasser. You have taken the step. Okay, trespassing uh, means it is, uh, it is describing a false step a deviation. You're crossing a line. Okay, you know what that is? You are actively rebelling. God has set forth his standard and we cross the line. Okay? We trespass. B, sins. That is the Greek word for missing the mark. Okay, we're talking about not hitting the target. You're not hitting the bullseye. You're failing to do something. In this case, we're failing to live up to the glory of God. Now, together, both of these words are covering sins of omission and sins of, co- sins of commission. Now, and notice what is said in verse 2, in which you formerly walked. Okay, in other words, this wasn't a one-time deal. Okay? Our entire way of life before God saved us was repeated perpetual disobedience to God and sin. Okay, that's the bad news. But it gets worse, so um, let's continue. Let's pick up in verse 2. Now, as we read this, I want you to be watching for there's three enemies of our soul that are going to come out in this passage. Verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world. Okay, there's the first one. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There's two among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. There's the third one. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, not only were we dead, but we were also enslaved. And that's number two. Number two in your paper, we were enslaved. We were enslaved to those three enemies. You were spiritually dead, yet functioning as a slaves. Now, um, let's take a look at, break those down. How were we enslaved? On your handout, A, we walked following the world. Now, I want to give you a definition for that. The world, in fact, is on your paper there. The world is the present evil world system, which is ruled by Satan. Prior to salvation, you were drifting along. You're doing what the world was doing. Okay, you may have had moments where things offended you, but for the most part, you're drifting. 
You're doing what the world does. And you, and you, and you liked it. You liked what the world had. Okay, B, we walked following the prince of the power of the air. All right, prince of the power of the air, that's just another name for Satan. And that adversary um, enemy we're probably most familiar with because we've talked of him in previous lessons. All right, now this is interesting. Some preachers will point out the meaning of the word air, okay? That is a word in the Greek that used to describe the lower heavens, the atmosphere immediately above the earth's surface, the air that surrounds humans, the air on the earth. So the idea possibly is that Satan is the prince of that realm, unseen, on which you and I walk. Okay, and according to Paul, we have been disobeying God and following him and the world. All right, C, we walked following the passions of our flesh. That's the third enemy of our souls. <clears throat> and I want to give you a definition for that one. That can be a hard term to define briefly, uh, the way it's used in this context, but I'm, I'm going to give it a shot. The flesh is that entity which is inherited from Adam. It is present in every human being and which is centered upon self, prone to sin and opposed to God. Okay, that's our sin nature. It's the part of you that wants stuff. It's the part of you that wants your own way. And before you were in Christ, it was ruling you. Okay, now I want you to notice all three of these Enemies, they still exist. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. <clears throat> what I want you to see now is the last part of that verse where it says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, what does this tell us about our past condition? Well, let's add number three, we were condemned. We were by nature children of wrath. Prior to being in Christ, we were under the wrath of God. We were condemned. Now, I want to give you a definition for that because we're talking about the wrath of God. Wrath, also on your paper. God's settled opposition to and displeasure with sin. Right now, here's what it's not. It's not uh, God losing his temper and just going on some uncontrollable rage or being vindictive. It is his righteous, holy hatred of all that is unholy. And prior to Christ, we were under it. We were condemned. Okay. Also, we were that by nature. Okay, now that means that in the above conditions that we've just talked about and described, it was our natural condition. That's the way we were born. It, we were, it was our nature from the beginning. And you act like your nature. All right, now I want you to think for, of something. If you see a little puppy... You don't wonder, oh, I wonder if that will grow up to be a dog one day. I wonder if it will grow up to do dog things. Okay? Yeah, you don't, because things grow up to be their nature, fulfill their nature. They grow up acting like their nature, and it is with us. We sin because that is our nature. We are sinners. I want you to think of your children, how they will learn to lie and be selfish and be sneaky and it won't matter how hard you try to isolate them or how godly your example, because it is in their nature to sin. Okay, last thing, I want you to see the remaining phrase that says, like the rest of mankind. Now, Paul does something there. 
He just takes everything that he wrote about and he told that was about us. Now he has made it the human condition. Okay? So that idea where everybody is good deep down inside, that is not the true human condition. Okay? Now, <clears throat> would you turn with me to Genesis 19? Genesis 19, I, I don't know about you, but I always do better if I have kind of a picture and a visual to help me understand something and to help me remember it. So um, I, I'd like to show you something that kind of helps me. Um, Genesis 19. I'm going to start in verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. Okay, jump to verse 4. He invites them into their home, his home. Now verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the man at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do not do anything to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck them with blindness, the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Did you catch that last part? They have been blinded. They have been restrained. And yet they wear themselves out groping for the door. Okay, one more. Turn to Luke chapter 23. New Testament. Luke 23. <clears throat> Luke 23, verse 20. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again, but they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. <clears throat> Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent with loud voices, asking he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. And, silent, and Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. Now, I want you to think about what we just read in Ephesians. Paul is talking to the believers. He's talking to the family. He's got the family sitting down, and he says, Family, you used to be dead in your trespasses and sin. You used to follow the course of the air. You used to just coast along doing whatever the, the world was doing, and you got caught up in it. You used to follow the prince of the air and obey him. You used to desire and you used to be so consumed with filling and pleasing your own flesh you, you know what you were a lot like those men back in Genesis 19 
You see, before Christ, you weren't running to God. You were exhausting yourself trying to fill and feed your own flesh. You see, before Christ, you were a lot like those men and the crowds in Luke, where you weren't seeking God. You were raising your fist, demanding that he get out of your life. You wanted your own way. Now, you may think that I know I was a sinner, but I was never anything like that. And I get that. I was saved young. I was saved before I really had a chance to do a lot of things. But I have since come to realize something, that had I been saved later in life and had my circumstances be different, I would have been among the crowd very easily of the Genesis 19 or the Luke 23. Now, some will say and point out that not everyone is equally corrupt, that there were different, um, uh, different degrees of evil. That's, that's one way of looking at it. There are others that point out that there are not, however, different degrees of dead. One corpse is no more dead than the other. Now, turn back to Ephesians. <clears throat> Ephesians, verses 1 through 3. It is dark. It is depressing. It is about the human condition. Why does Paul bring that up? We're already believers. Why do we need to know this? Why bring this up now at this point? Well, let's find out. Ephesians 2, let's look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Okay, verse 4, important verse. But God, but God. When you see the word but, when you're studying the Bibles, that is a contrast word. It is introducing contrast. It's introducing a change of direction. And so I I like to watch for them when I'm reading. I'll sometimes even mark them. Okay, it is also a connecting phrase. It is connecting the verses before to the verses after so that the two go together. All right, we don't want to read the part about sin and not keep reading. Okay, so... Let's see. Our condition, it was depressing. It was hopeless. But God, but God intervened. But God comes on the scene. Okay, let's see what we learned about that. On your paper, number one, but God, rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. Number two, great in love. That's how he comes. He's rich in mercy, great in love. Now, when did he come or intervene? Look at verse 5. It says, when we were dead in our trespasses. There's that phrase again, okay? And remember what the term for trespassing was. That was the, that was the one when we were crossing the line. There was nothing passive about that one. Okay, <clears throat> do you remember our first lesson together when I told you about my girlfriend who uh, we had the conversation about election and she became very mad. She became very angry at the thought that somebody would say that God chooses beforehand before the foundation of the world. That made her angry. <clears throat> well, I doubt that she had picture, I doubt that she had things pictured the way Paul is describing them here. 
I know um, most of the time when we think of the human condition and we think of God coming to sinners, we probably have our own uh, scene in our head as to how that looked. I know for me, mine used to be like a scene out of a Russell Crowe movie. It went something like this. It was the movie in which he was in, it was during the Depression. And he looks very gaunt and uh, ragged and uh, hopeless. And he goes to this place, I think it was the dock or something, and he's looking for work and he meets up with some other men who are also ragged and poor and, and, um, and looking gaunt. And uh, then a, a man comes along and he says something like, okay, I've got work, I'm, I, need, I got a job, I need three men. Well, all of those men start raising their hand. They, they want the job. They want their situation changed. They want help. Okay? That is not the scene that Paul is describing here. Paul describes God coming rich in mercy and great in love to a people who have their fists raised defying him. They are more like the scene in Luke 23 than in the Russell Crowe movie. Now, here's the thing. When we begin to understand our sin and our depravity, then God brings out the jewels. And we get to have just a better, more clear understanding of what is grace and what is, what is mercy and what is love. What else do we see? What was the result of God coming in mercy and great love? Look at verse 5. <clears throat> Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For our paper, what did he do? A, he made us alive together in Christ. You used to be dead. You used to be separated from God. Now you are alive and you are united with him. <clears throat> but that's not all. Next on your paper, B, you are raised up with him. <clears throat> and C, you are seated. He has seated us with him. Now look at those. Do you see the similarities between what Paul was talking about and the gospel? Um, Christ, he was dead. He was raised to life. He was ascended up into heaven and then seated at the right hand of God. Do you see how similar the things are that Paul talks about? He tells us that we have been united to Christ in all of these things. Okay, you are no longer dead. You are no longer in the realm of the prince of the air. You have been raised to Christ, raised with Christ. All right, that means you are no longer enslaved to the prince of the air. Now, those three enemies, like I said, they still exist. That is why you have daily conflict in your soul, but you are not enslaved to them anymore. You've been raised up with Christ. Okay, what does that mean? Well, think back to some of the things that enslaved you before you were saved. Maybe it was an insecurity or an anxiety or jealousy or lust. 
they have no hold on you anymore. You have resurrection power in your soul to deal with these. Lastly, I want to talk about why did God do this? Why did God come rich in mercy and love to save us? Have you ever wondered, why did he save me? Well, I'm glad you asked because Paul's going to explain. Look at verse 7. So that, he's telling us why, in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Why did he save us? Two things. First, look in verse 7. It says that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Some of your versions may use the word display, that he might display the riches of his grace. Then you see something a little similar to that. Look in verse 10. It says, for we are his workmanship. Okay, that word workmanship was a word that meant work of art. Sometimes it was a word used to describe a poem. Okay? Uh, Sometimes your word in your Bibles will actually be translated masterpiece. Okay, so in other words, God has brought you to life. He has raised you and seated you with Christ in the heavenlies so that you would put God's grace on display so that in the ages to come, the world could look upon you and say, that is what grace looks like. That is grace. All right, let's add that to our sheet. Why did he save us? Number one, to put his immeasurable grace and workmanship on display. You've heard the expression, a trophy of grace. You know the trophy is to point to the recipient or the owner. Okay, it's not, it's not about the actual statue. If um, you are watching uh, the Oscars and somebody wins, wins an Oscar, all the attention and all the interviews after, you know, they're not about all the little details of the statue. They're, they're about the actor and his great work and how wonderful he is. Okay, we, in this case, the trophy is about, is to put on display the grace of God. And we're the trophy. We're the display. Right now, that implies some things. It implies that our lives are intended to be visual aids to a watching world. It implies that we are the live exhibits. Many of you have young eyes at home watching. You have experienced the grace of God so that you may put it on display. Your unsaved spouse, your unsaved family members, You're the trophy of grace in the home. I want to close with something that I probably should have gone over our first week. In lesson one, we talked about election. We talked about how we we were chosen before the foundation of the world. We talked about how we are predestined to adoption as sons. And that can be a very difficult topic in a room like this because most of you are mothers. 
and I know where you go with this. You wonder, what about my children? Where do they fit in? I know I have been chosen before the foundation of the world. What about my children? Well, I want you to see something. Would you turn with me to Matthew, the book of Matthew, chapter 11? Matthew chapter 11, um, verse 27, and this is Jesus speaking. Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son, watch it now, chooses to reveal. Okay, that's sovereign election. That is Jesus talking to people who have been following the course of the air, following the prince of uh, the prince following the course of the world, following the the prince of the power of the air in their own flesh. And Jesus says to them, no one here, no one will come to the Father unless I choose to reveal him. All right? Let's see what happens next. Verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now notice he does not say, come to me, all you who are chosen. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Verse 27, sovereign election. Verse 28, invitation to salvation. Election, choice. Verse 27, sovereign election. Verse 28, invitation to salvation. How do you explain the two of them together? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how you explain sovereign election and free will, how they both exist. But I want you to remember our first week when we talked about studying Ephesians. And I told you we needed to be prepared for mystery because not everything has been explained to us yet. So we cannot, all we know for sure, we can't fully explain this, how in one verse Jesus makes clear that God chooses and then in the next verse he invites people to come and exercise faith in him. But here's what I want you to see when it comes to your young children. If you are a believer, you have been chosen before the foundation of the world. You have been shown grace to be a display of God's grace in your home. Do you know what that makes you? It makes you the invitation. It makes you, verse 27, verse 28... It makes you verse 28 in your homes. Last point, number two. Why did he save us? Number two, to display his grace and invite the lost world to salvation. Let's pray.
Father God, <clears throat> we are weak vessels and can't possibly even begin to comprehend the rich mercy and the great love and the grace that you have shown us. I pray that you will help us to understand it. I pray that you will help us to act like women who've been raised from the dead and raised up in Christ. Help us to properly display the grace of God to a lost world. And we pray all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.